Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, like Jonathan said, I'm really happy to be here again for a second time, and I feel like because my first time, he said, went really well, you got the good thing the first time, and now the second time will be weirder. Um, I'm just going to warn you in advance, this is weirder, um, and I hope we can all just roll with it. I have to tell you that this is not just a fluke, it's really a part of my personality. I love weird things in the Bible. <laughs> I love the weird stuff because I have found through trial and error and practice that when we look a little deeper at the weird stuff or the strange stuff or the things that even seem on face bad or uncomfortable, that by faith in God, we will find something beautiful and good. So I say this to begin because I think if there's one thing you learn today, I want it to be that this passage that I'm about to read is one of many places in Scripture where I think we often miss the really good, theologically rich, convicting stuff because we stop when it gets weird. So we are going to see in this passage today, first, a way of looking at the world that we don't often do, but maybe we should. And then secondly, a truth about who God is. And then lastly, a commission for us today. So let's start with this passage. It is Psalm 82. I'm going to read the whole thing. A Psalm of Asaph. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So the obvious weird thing going on here is what is going on with the gods? It's kind of a weird thing. And I don't think we can get into any of the rich stuff that's in this passage. I think there's so much else going on here before we deal with that weird thing, right? Who are the gods? Your translations might have different things for the first line of that psalm. Mine says, God presides in the great assembly and gives judgment among the gods, with gods in quotation marks. Some translations will say divine council instead of great assembly. Some will say gods with no quotation marks. And some will even say rulers, human rulers, instead of gods here. All of these different translations do not tell us that the Bible is some incomprehensible, indecipherable, ancient document we cannot understand or use today. But they do tell us that this is a strange passage, and translators have struggled to figure out how to communicate to you in your Bible what is going on. And it's not hard for us to imagine why this is difficult. Um, what's the first thing you learn in Sunday school besides Jesus is the answer to every question? There is one God, right? There might be idols, there might be false gods other people worship, but there is only one true God. Those other ones are not real, right? So what do we do with this strange psalm that opens seemingly with a worldview that we do not and could not hold? There are three main options if you go out and pool the scholars who study this, who look at the grammar and the history and they're trying to figure out the theology of this. There's three main camps. 
The first option is the God's in quotation marks option. Why translation? This says that the psalmist is operating under the assumptions of the surrounding nations, of Canaanite religion in particular, and is offering a polemic, a criticism against them from within their own frame of reference. So the psalmist starts out with their view of the world, in which the various gods rule over different regions or areas of life, and they're gathered together in this council, and he takes that worldview and uses it to show that God is in charge. That's the first option, the quotation mark option. The second option is the non-quotation mark option. The psalmist is describing reality as it really is. There are lower G gods that govern the world under God's authority. And the psalmist is pulling back the curtain of heaven and showing us what's really going on behind the scenes. We kind of get a glimpse of this in the first couple chapters of Job, right? Satan goes and he's going to kind of test Job. And there's a sense in which there's this council where Satan and God are having this conversation. And this is not a non-Christian view to hold, right? But it's important for kind of understanding how to hold it that the Hebrew word for gods used here, El and Elohim in the plural, are not specific words for Yahweh, for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We rightfully, when we hear the word God in English, bring all of this theological stuff with us, right? All-powerful, all-knowing, creator of everything, redeemer, trinity, But this word, in their cultural context, just kind of meant spiritual being. So the psalmist is just describing that there is a category of spiritual beings in the world that have authority, and God is presiding over that council. That's the second option. The third option is the metaphor option. It was a traditional Jewish interpretation, and it's why some of the translations say rulers, to to see these gods as Israelite rulers. And Christians have taken up this interpretation in the past as well. The psalmist is using inflated language to refer to human judges or rulers. And this, this isn't just an out of a difficult passage, like, oh, we got out of God's, we'll just call it something else. No, it, there's good theological and biblical reasons for this. Theologically, as we'll see later today, the spiritual and the earthly are connected constantly in Scripture. And secondly, this particular word, Elohim, is even used to refer to human officials a couple of times in Exodus. So we have a good reason to think this could be right. And so now that I've given you these three options, you don't have to be figuring out which one you think. This is complicated, right? I I used to do children's ministry, so I used to think about how I would do any biblical story in a flannel board. (laughs) This would be really difficult (laughs) to do that. I don't even know what parts I would use or where you would cut out, what you would even do. This is a strange passage. But here's the thing. I don't think we have to choose between these options. Because one of the foundational things that I hope you come away with today is this. The spiritual political, and personal are never strictly separated in God's kingdom. Why can't the psalmist be referring to both spiritual beings and human rulers? Why can't this be a polemic, a criticism against Canaanite rulers and also a description of reality? Why can't the psalmist be describing the world as it really is and how we often kind of feel like it is? Like there is a relationship between human rulers and spiritual things going on in the world. Many of us have been taught a way of reading the Bible that goes something like this. I have a question in my head. I go to my Bible. I open it up. Maybe I look in the concordance in the back. I find the right answer, and I walk away happy that I've learned something new, right? We treat the Bible like an encyclopedia of religious knowledge or a moral handbook of rules or an account of history with some spiritual goodies kind of sprinkled in. We're smart, rational people. We know how to read a book right? You take the information in the book, your brain is a receptacle, you put that information in, you're good to go. That's not how Christians have read the Bible throughout history. It's not how I think we should read the Bible. One of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, 
wrote a famous essay called The Strange New World Within the Bible. Early in the essay, Bart writes, what is there within the Bible? What sort of house is it to which the Bible is the door? What sort of country is spread before our eyes when we throw the Bible open? He goes on to describe the wild and wonderful world of Abraham hearing the call of God to go, of Moses and the Israelites wandering in the desert, of Solomon, who, of Samuel, excuse me, who's trying to sleep and the Lord won't let him go to sleep. He keeps talking to him. Strange things happen. People do weird stuff. It's confusing. And what I love about this way of talking about the Bible is that it describes it as a world into which we enter, where we should expect to find strange and uncomfortable things. This is the strange and wonderful world we find in Psalm 82. The spiritual and the earthly are not so strictly divided. The, ruler of the, the rulers of the earth are in some way related to spiritual forces. God rules over not just the heavens, but also the earth. This is the way that we are told to think about the world in Psalm 82. And the first thing that we learn about this strange new world in verse 1 is something about who God is. The first thing we learn is that God reigns. God presides. God judges. God is in charge. God reigns over all creation, the spiritual, the political, and the personal. God reigns over all of it, spiritual, political, and personal. I think the best way to describe to you the first verse of this uh, psalm is to tell you a story about when I first went to seminary. When I started telling people I was going to seminary in college, I was in a context where women generally did not do that. So I got the same question all the time, why? And often followed up with, what are you going to do with that? And don't judge me for the answer that I gave 90% of the time, but most of the time I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, anything but children's ministry. I've already spoiled the end of the story, which is that when I moved to Dallas, Texas to go to seminary, two days after I moved in, I got a job working in children's ministry. (laughs) So do not tell God or God's people what you will not do, because you will have to do it. And I learned so much in those first few years. I learned how much I love kids, how much I care about the theological education of kids. I learned how hard it is, so much harder than I thought. Um, And I always like to take an opportunity anytime I preach in any church to just say, go help with the kids. They need your help. It's one of the most significant things for the life of the church for our kids to be loved and to learn who Jesus is. So I had so much fun doing this job, but early in that job, just a couple of weeks in, I got a a call on one of the walkie-talkies that one of our most experienced teachers and her helper, her younger daughter, were stuck in traffic. So I ran over to her classroom and into a room of 15 four- and five-year-olds. It was chaos. I mean, I'm not joking. It was like kids were running and screaming. There was paint dripping down a cabinet. I'm not joking. There were two little girls fighting over a baby doll. Like, it was like biblical levels of violence. (laughs) And I come into this, 22 years old, fresh out of college, and I'm like, I'm going to put my foot down. Like, I'm going to tell them what's what. I might as well have been invisible. It did not matter what I did. There was just chaos. And after what felt like hours, but was probably just like 15 minutes of humbling chaos for this first year seminary student, I am not joking about this either. My back was turned to the door, but I could tell you when their teacher entered the room. It was silence. It's like the baby doll was dropped. Someone was wiping the paint off. They knew who was in charge. And it wasn't me. That is the start of this psalm. 
All of the gods are fighting. This is the religious context the Israelites were in, right? There's an idea that whichever of these gods is the most powerful will ultimately win. They're causing mischief and ridiculousness. And God enters the council, and you know who the rightful authority is. God sets the standard for all authorities. And God's standard, as we will see, is justice. Verse 2 begins God's judgment with a question. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? How long is a constant cry of the Bible? How long will you hide your face from me, God? Psalm 13 asks. Habakkuk asks the same. How long will I cry for help, God, and you will not listen? When God gives Isaiah his calling, his command to prophesy to his people things they do not want to hear, he asks a very reasonable question. How long? That little question puts words to our deep and abiding sense that this is not how things are supposed to be. The world is broken. Humans are fallen. We exploit and abuse each other. We hurt each other when we aren't even trying. We get sick. We die. The world that is supposed to be our home is racked with earthquakes and floods. I mean, it goes from the big stuff. Nations go to war against each other. A pandemic kills hundreds of thousands of people to the everyday stuff. My family is fighting and my body is broken and my work goes unnoticed. How long, Lord? And here, the question, how long, is not in the mouth of a human to God, as it usually is, but in the mouth of God. The same God who later enters into our suffering in an even more significant way. How long? The psalmist describes for us the reason the world is so broken. Sin has impacted more than just our hearts, though it has impacted our hearts. It's impacted all of creation. The spiritual beings who were supposed to rule the world justly instead allow exploitation and abuse. The human rulers who were supposed to exercise authority on God's behalf have abused their power. And then God moves from the question and the condemnation to imperatives. Defend, uphold, rescue, deliver. God's standard for justice is not abstract. And God's rule in the heavens is not unconcerned with the details of everyday human life. This is the justice God demands for his creation. The weak are defended. The orphans are taken care of. The poor and oppressed have people who fight for them. This is what God demands of all rulers, spiritual and earthly. And these words should sound very familiar to words all throughout Scripture. This is the law given to Israel to care for the orphan and the foreigner and the widow. These are the demands given a few psalms before this. If you get a chance to read later Psalm 72, to a human ruler, act justly or you will be judged. These are the words Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4. He has come to fulfill. And this demand, this consistent demand throughout Scripture for justice, is not a demand that this psalm gives us an opportunity to offload onto other people onto higher spiritual authorities, onto rulers, human rulers that have so much power. No, this standard of justice, of caring for the most vulnerable, is a standard God gives for all who exercise any kind of authority. And that includes all of us. We were given in Genesis the command to rule and reign, to exercise authority from God in creation. And that especially includes all of us 
In 21st century America, many of us who have opportunities and resources to uphold and rescue and deliver and defend like no early Christian could have imagined. What does God say next after these imperatives? I'm going to read verse 5 again to remind you. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. There's a few important things in this one verse. First, the gods are not dismissed as not real or even as unimportant. Their injustice is condemned. Their power is revealed as temporary and fragile. But the significance of God showing up in the divine council and calling out the gods is that they are real and their power affects people. Whether we're talking about spiritual beings or human rulers, and again, I think we're talking about both. They're not easily divided. They have power in the world. This is similar to the language the New Testament will use of powers and principalities, of dominions, of authorities. The power that wealth and violence and racism and nationalism and sexism have in our world, they are real things. The way that money and wealth corrupt human hearts the way that institutions get captivated by injustice and end up exploiting the people they were supposed to serve, the way that people's fears get hijacked by a broken political system and pit people against each other, that is power. This is why verse 5 tells us the foundations are shaken. The world was not supposed to be this way. The moral order God built into his creation, those foundations have been corrupted. And our ability to discern that moral order has also been corrupted. The gods walk around in darkness. They know nothing. There are both spiritual and earthly causes of the instability and corruption in our world. Hear me say this. There are both spiritual and earthly causes. There are broken systems. There are bad policies. And there are spiritual forces that hurt the vulnerable and prop up the powerful. And God calls all of it out. The corruption in our world is cosmic. You are not making things up if you look around and feel like this cannot be fixed. It is too broken. The powers are too powerful and they are doing wrong. Strangely enough, this psalm should be a comfort. This is not how things were supposed to be. We are in desperate need of salvation and we see a glimpse of that in verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read those again too. I said, you are God's. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. There is no authority that rivals God's. And when the lower authorities fail to bring the flourishing and wholeness to God's creation that they were intended to, they are judged and they will die. Interestingly, there's one time in the New Testament that Jesus cites this psalm, and as you might expect, it is weird. <laughs> the psalm is weird. Jesus' quotation of it is weird. It's actually one of my favorite genres of Jesus' sayings in the Gospels. There's a bunch of different ones, but one of my favorites is the one where someone asks a question or confronts Jesus, and then he just says something weird, and everyone's confused, and then he walks away. <laughs> That's kind of what happens in John 10. The religious leaders are preparing to stone Jesus for blasphemy. They literally have stones in their hand to kill him. They say that he claims to be God. And Jesus answers them, I'm shortening what he says here, is it not written in your law, 
I have said you are gods, this psalm. If scripture cannot be set aside, why do you accuse me of blasphemy? He asks. Now, I'm not going to explain everything that's going on there because, like I said, it's one of those weird Jesus (laughs) moments. Um, But I think it makes a little more sense if we go back to this psalm. In this psalm, the standard has been set for who has rightful authority. God sets the standard, and the standard is justice. You uphold the vulnerable and the weak. You defend the defenseless. You rescue the weak and the needy. You can have authority. You don't. Just wait. You will be judged. Jesus can say, against these religious leaders, as no one else ever could or ever has since, the religious leaders certainly themselves could not say this, that he has met God's standard of justice. In his earthly ministry, he upheld the vulnerable. He rescued us, the weak and needy. He defeated death by his work on the cross. So this psalm, Psalm 82, is just a small picture of something we see blown up in the New Testament to even more cosmic proportions when Christ defeats the powers and principalities on the cross. This sounds scary, and we see a glimpse of salvation here, but we are just waiting for when Christ defeats the powers and principalities on the cross once and for all. That's coming in this story. As we have said over and over again, this is about the defeat and the downfall of both human rulers and spiritual powers. There's no easy divide between the two of them. This is about the fall of any authority that is against God, any authority that does not fulfill God's intention for his creation. These two verses, verses 6 and 7, sound very similar to the account of the fall of Babylon in Isaiah 14. And that is probably not a passage you're super familiar with unless you've thought about it in the context of Satan. A lot of Christians have seen in Isaiah 14 a description of Satan's fall. So again, in this passage in Isaiah, human rulers falling, spiritual rulers falling, we kind of see that they're all mixed up. Here are some of the lines from Isaiah 14, starting in verse 4. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. Then in verse 9, it says, the realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world makes them rise from their thrones. All who were kings over the nations, they will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave. Along with the noise of your harps, maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. That is extreme language to tell a very important point. Your injustice will not last. Your corrupted power will be your own demise. For all the wealth and power you enjoyed on earth, you will be brought low. This, like much of the Bible, is a frightening message for the powerful and a comforting message for the powerless. But ultimately, it's good news for all of us. The false gods you serve, the ones you thought would help you and instead have exploited you, they will die, so stop serving them. I imagine this psalm with the spiritual forces that seem to kind of captivate our attentions and affections today— I imagine God standing before the false gods of power and wealth and control and racism, and he says to them in the divine assembly, you are dead. Before the almighty God, you are mortal, you are weak, you are passing away. This passage reminds me of another one that I get forced into talking about all the time. I spend most of my time thinking and writing and talking about Christians and politics, so it's the one passage everyone wants me to talk about. 
Romans 13. I was just telling Jonathan earlier, you can say Romans 13 and you don't even have to say a verse. People just know what that is, right? Romans 13. Obey the government, pay your taxes. And I hate to break it to you, but it does say, obey the government, pay your taxes. (laughs) But sometimes when it comes to biblical passages like this, we put them on a continuum, right? We say on one end, there's something like Psalm 82, which is like down with the powers. And then there's Romans 13, which is like, no, get along with them. (laughs) There is not this continuum. The message of scripture is consistent here. It actually says something very similar to this psalm. I'm just going to read the first two verses of Romans 13 to jog your memory. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. The first thing to note about this passage is that like Psalm 82, it frames earthly and divine rule as connected in ways that we tend to think of in this passage as stifling or submissive. But by connecting divine and human rule, to say to the Roman Empire, your power comes from God, is to say to the Roman Empire, your power comes from Christ who you crucified. The Roman Empire demanded total allegiance. The emperor was supposed to be worshipped like a god. And so Paul in Romans 13 is saying what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 82, is saying what Mary said in her song, is saying what Jesus said to the religious authorities, God rules over you. It's the same story over and over and over again. You powerful people, you spiritual rulers, you religious authorities, you rule justly and you recognize where your power comes from or you will be judged. There's a day to talk about Romans 13 and political responsibility. It's something I do all the time, but there are also days to say every unjust authority, the Roman Empire persecuting Christians, modern nations that harm the poor, spiritual leaders and pastors who put burdens on God's people, politicians who exploit fear and misinformation, leaders of institutions who exploit their power will be brought low. And Rome, like Canaan and Babylon and the United States of America, will pass away. The human rulers will die. The corrupted spiritual authorities will die. Their power now, great as it seems, is the last whimper, the last grasp for control and influence of an empire that is dead. Have you ever seen someone who knows that their power is waning? Maybe it's a kid on the playground who realizes that they're not the cool thing anymore. Or it's someone at work who realizes that all the important projects are slowly being pushed away from them. What do they do? Oftentimes they lash out, desperate to just have some remaining influence or control or just to hurt someone. They're so upset about their power being taken away. That's what's happening with every kind of false god and corrupt authority on earth. They are lashing out because they know they have lost already. But because those last grasps for power are so effective, because they hurt us and especially the vulnerable so much. The psalmist has a last word for us. I'm going to read verse 8 again. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. After God has been speaking for most of the psalm, the psalmist comes back and his voice pipes up again. They've gotten this behind-the-scenes look at the heavenly council. They've seen God judging the gods, bringing them to account, exacting the judgment and the justice and the righteousness that he should. But I imagine that any human, 
after getting a glimpse of this amazing justice in heaven, would cry out as God did earlier, how long? How long until you bring this justice that you have done in heaven down to earth? The language the psalmist uses here, rise up, is the same language used in the prayer for when the Ark of the Covenant was moved from one place to the next. Moses said, rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. In other words, this language, rise up, God, reminds us of God's presence with his people, his involvement in the everyday affairs of humans, his power to protect and provide. This same word is used throughout the Psalms to call out to God, to cry out for justice in the earth. And then the psalmist gives us a reason for this cry, the nations are your inheritance. This harkens back to Deuteronomy 32 when it says, God divided up all of humanity, set the boundaries for the nations, gave them their inheritance. It's another way of saying what the psalm has been saying all along, God rules. The nations surrounding Israel who worshiped their own gods and went out and fought their own wars and thought they determined their own destinies are wrong. Their gods were ruled by Yahweh. Their boundaries of their nations were determined by Yahweh. Their sense of control and independence was a farce because they will be judged by Yahweh. The same needs to be said of us, of our nation, of our sense of power and independence and control. We are wrong. But this is good news because God's reign is just and merciful and righteous. As I said before, this psalm gives us an imagination to think about the world in a totally different way where the spiritual and the earthly are connected. It tells us who God is, what his standard is for authority, and it is justice. And then it gives us a commission to hear and respond to God's call for justice and to call out to God for justice. First, to respond to God's call for justice. If the earthly and the spiritual are not so easily separated, then we have the call to seek justice in all sorts of ways, in our personal lives, in our families, in our communities. We can join God's call for justice from our rulers in all sorts of practical ways, partner with our neighbors, advocate on behalf of the vulnerable. But ultimately, we join the psalmist, calling out to God for justice that only he can provide. The end of this psalm sounds just like the words Jesus taught us to pray. The psalmist sees the justice done in the heavenly realm and says, make it so on earth. In other words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the good news. There is an end to injustice. And until then, we pray and we work and we wait. We take this good news with us into the good works that we do when it seems hopeless, like the world is too broken to do anything good, the powers are too great to fight against, we can hold fast to the words of this psalm. In the face of everything broken and corrupt in the world, a broken political system, deep divisions in our communities, rulers of all kinds who seem incapable of doing something good, it's easy to respond in one of two ways, I have found. First, we can stop trying. The powers are too large and powerful the problems in this world are impossible to solve. It's not worth all the effort to keep fighting and failing, and it's so impossible I want to give up. We give up. Or, second response, we resort to the world's tactics. If they fight dirty, we fight dirty. 
They're too powerful for us to play by the rules. They're too horrible to speak to with compassion. They're lying and exploiting people to get what they want. The ends justify the means for them. Why don't we do that too? This psalm does not give us a cliche, simple answer. God's in control, so don't worry. But that truth, God's in control, is saying to people weary of fighting for justice, tempted to give up or cut corners, God has already won. You are free to fight for justice and serve your neighbors and pour yourself out for the marginalized without worrying that your efforts are in vain or that it's too much to fight against or that you have to resort to the world's tactics to get anything done. We do not have to worry that the false gods of power and wealth and violence will win. They will not. So if you don't mind, I'd like to end by praying these words that Jesus taught us to pray. So would you stand? We're going to pray this prayer together as a way of orienting our hearts towards this truth, that God is in control and so we have the freedom to fight hard for justice in the world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.